0: Super Bowl Sunday is that most American of secular holidays, a mass public worship of the sports and entertainment juggernaut that is the National Football League. So as people are gearing up for Sunday's big game with the Los Angeles Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals, some of the league's unsavory traits are unfortunately surfacing, at least for the league, particularly its treatment of black coaches, how it addresses health issues, and its tolerance of hostile work environments. One right here in the nation's capital, uh, for instance, and other issues such as violence on, the, on and off the field and just, you know, the overall issues that come with such a big enterprise as the NFL. With us on political theater to discuss these political footballs is Jane Koston, host of the New York Times podcast, The Argument, and an opinions writer at The Times. Jane, welcome to political theater.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So we are, you know, as as I mentioned, we're we're, we're all sort of uh, getting our uh, orders for barbecue and wings and chips and so forth for Sunday. Uh, this will be the NFL's uh, first Super Bowl at uh, at the. At the LA Chargers and LA Rams new home in, uh, Inglewood, California, which is just this massive, you know, $5 billion high tech stadium. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, the NFL is riding high, you know, it's got record popularity. It had an incredibly entertaining regular season. The first one to go 17 games, you know, it's, it's truly like a part of the fabric of our country. And then it just has these really, uh, these really gnarly things, bad things going on, you know, at an operational level. Before we get to some of that, though, I've got to I've got to ask uh, one of the most recent changes, a cosmetic change, if you will, at the Washington Football Team was the uh, the the team recently, which was nameless for two years after having uh, an, another uh, nickname, which will go unsaid on this podcast, uh, unveiled their new name, the Commanders, and I'm curious how you feel about the name change being a football fan yourself
1: <laughs> i feel as if it, it's interesting to me that there were a, there were so many options that were interesting but we knew that they <laughs> would not choose one of the interesting ones um there were some people who were like well you could be the red tails kind of in honor of african americans who fought in the second world war or any host of interesting names tied to DC or tied to the team's legacy in a good way. And then I looked at who leads this team and I thought, no, no, that's (laughs) not what it's going to be. It's going to be something anodyne. Like the commanders is fine. It's just also funny because it's going to be the kind of name that you just kind of forget is there. It's the name of course that they of course picked. It is, it, it is the one that has been beaten to death in focus groups for long enough that I'm I'm like of, of course I'm sure obviously
0: let's talk about this has been a heady week already uh it's it's you know as as we're recording this i mean we've got the super bowl uh uh coming up on sunday but today you know uh, in the in the last few 24 hours or so the nfl you know had this huge coaching vacancy carousel at the end of the regular season and then all of a sudden you know in in the middle of a debate about um about black coaches black head coaches and the lack of opportunity being afforded to them even though some of them have absolutely sterling credentials for it all the all the vacancies are 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 filled the number of black coaches has gone up 100% so there are now two of them <laughs> Right. In in, in in the league, uh when Lovey Smith was hired by the Houston Texans. Um let's talk about why where we are and and like why this is so significant, why why it, it is such an important thing to 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 kind of get right or and to reflect on as a business and as a political system, as a culture.
1: I, I was joking last night with a friend that when the Texans said it was between Josh McCown and Brian Flores, I, I just imagined some attorney running in out of nowhere, being like, no, there is another. <laughs> and just saying like, yeah, Lovey Smith is qualified to do this job. He's been the assistant head coach. But the fact that this, it it, it came to this moment. It came to... Josh McCown, who's never coached at any level and was as recently as October being an available veteran quarterback who would be nice to add to a locker room. For him to have gotten, not just, he was offered the assistant coach position last year. He had two interviews this year. Like at a certain point, it seemed to make Flores' point for him. And when I spoke to him, he talked about how he was still up for that job. He interviewed well for that job. And I think that the entire thing just goes to show how I don't think that this was the work of some sort of snidely whiplash evil Mississippi burning racist within the ownership core of the NFL. I do think that the ownership core of the NFL is prone to the same types of groupthink that we see in large organizations of any kind, in which they are aware that you know there are coaches that you give a long runway to, and there are coaches who. You give him a shot, even though you shouldn't. Like, I just kept, you know, you kept seeing how Josh McDaniel got another job or something like that, which I was like, you know, I was alive for his tenure at the Broncos. It did not go well. <laughs> but you see, you see someone like Vance Joseph who doesn't get another chance. And for Lovey and, to and get. And some
0: people who get no chance at all, like Eric Biennami right. and Byron yeah, Leftwich. Who, yeah. Eric
1: Biennami, who I think at this point has interviewed with half the teams in the league over the last three years. And I, I believe it was. Andy Reid, who was saying, like, I kind of wish he weren't here anymore. Like, I can't believe he doesn't have a head coaching job yet. And I think that it, it is interesting to me that this is posited as being like, oh, like, you know, this is a meritocracy or something. We, know. When Josh McCown was floated numerous times for a job, we knew that wasn't true. And we've known that isn't true. We know that this is this becomes about like, you know, a vibes check for own NFL owners where it's like well did he work with this guy who I respect um you know we've seen that with the so-called Bill Belichick coaching tree which is like a stump i, I you know you you see it with what happened with Detroit with bringing in Matt Patricia who was a worse coach who right. did not have the experience and who was just a worse coach than the coach that they fired to get him NFL teams do not work like they are companies but they don't work like companies right. like you know i'm i'm from cincinnati any company that ran like how mike brown ran the bengals and has run the bengals since 1988 would not be he would no longer be ceo but that's these these are owners they are not ceos exactly and so I think that this really goes to just seeing like the fallibility of the NFL ownership core. We've seen that with the Jaguars, with hiring Urban Meyer because vibes. Um, We've seen that with a host of other coaching efforts that seem to ignore the people who are the most experienced. And especially um, I think the point that some have made is that part of this will be, you know, you hear from NFL writers saying that like, well, you know, they're looking for, uh, they want to hire an offensive coordinator, And there aren't enough black offensive coordinators, which one, like, that's not a reason to not hire a black head coach. But also, we see that when black coaches get started out, they get shunted into, like, into run game, into, you know, coordinators, into specific aspects of the game that then are not chosen to be head coaches and then sometimes you're Josh McCown and some guy decides (laughs) maybe he should be the head coach of an NFL team because he seems nice and it just is like this is not about it's almost it's it's not even about corporate culture and you know we'll talk about with the commanders this is about ownership this is about if you ran you know it's I've never watched Succession, but I believe it is a show about people being idiots while running a company that is owned by the people who are idiots. And yeah, that sounds like an NFL team. That sounds like an <laughs> NFL it's it's not about profit margins because the NFL as we've learned, the NFL can fall down the stairs and make a billion dollars doing it. Yeah. The, they do the, every
0: every week it seems.
1: <laughs> every week and you it's on the field, it's off the field, It's with refereeing decisions that don't make any sense that they, you know, you hear back later from the NFL being like, Oh yeah, we should have um, called that, but we didn't like, and no one, and it it, it has no impact. And it's fascinating to see the league as this Teflon entity when other sports leagues are not, Mm -hmm. um, Major League Baseball, I mean, granted, Major League Baseball has the worst owner in sports. And that's saying something because there are very few good chairs of sports leagues. Um, they don't really exist. But Major League Baseball has its own issues with that. But like, it is interesting to me that this is one of those challenges. And I, that's why I think that Flores' lawsuit is so interesting is that like, the NFL could do what it's probably going to do, which is um, they released a memo. Saying that they're going to reevaluate its diversity practices, maybe and they'll I'm form sure that, a subcommittee. Ooh, they're going <laughs> to form, yeah, and then eventually we'll get somewhere. Let, let's keep in mind the Rooney Rule was created because of um, a study that was announced and um, at a press conference by the late Johnny Cochran, who threatened to sue, and the response was the owners were like, "What is the easiest possible option for us?" And the Rooney Rule was the easiest possible option. And the owners agreed to it unanimously because again, it was easy. It's very easy to say, like, yeah, we'll interview at least one minority coach for all head coaching op- uh, openings, and that has expanded to general managers as well. Yeah, but then it turns out that you can do that without meaning it. And, and right. you know, that's what happens when you give lip service to this idea.
0: And that's kind of the crux of Flora is the and and again for for those for those of our listeners who are, are perhaps not as uh, uh, nerding out in on football uh, as, as Jane and I right now, Brian Flores uh, was the head coach of the Miami Dolphins for the past three years. He was fired after two consecutive winning seasons. Uh, he has filed a, uh, a lawsuit alleging that the league is discriminating particularly against him and, and black coaches. Uh, and part of that was spurred by the feeling that he got and some anecdotal evidence that some of the interviews that he was uh, um, some of the jobs he was interviewing for were just sham interviews, that they they were just simply, you know, pro formas as as you mentioned.
1: Right. I think that's a concerning thing. And part of uh Flores' lawsuit is that when um he had not yet interviewed for the New York Giants open position, the New York Giants noted shambolic organization, um, <laughs> and he got a text message from Bill Belichick being like, Oh, Brian, congrats. you know, I heard that it's gonna be you. And he had to, the wrong Brian. <laughs> yeah. And I just keep thinking, I, I had a, a, a text message back and forth with my friend Clinton Yates where I was just like, I cannot imagine how painful it is to be like, which Brian are you sending this to? And to know like, oh, I didn't get the job that I have not yet interviewed for. Like this is, you know, if and this is something that he... He talked about having experiences with the. He alleged this. Uh, something similar happened with the Broncos in 2019, and I think that there are. It's a really heartbreaking element of this. When I spoke with him, it was just striking how much one he really wants to coach. He really, really wants to coach, and he's a and good one too. He's a good coach. I mean, <laughs> if you saw what and, and, you know, that's what you see time and time again is that he got something out of nothing with the Dolphins, um, which is part of why he alleges that part of why he was fired is because he won too many games and hurt their draft position. Um, But we saw that with the Texans as well, like that you have a coach who overperforms. And it's funny talking about this with uh, the Texans because they finished four and 13 with David Cully, but for the Texans, who were intentionally basically tanking, because they've sold off everybody, you know, JJ's gone. Like they've sold off all their best players. Four thirteen is like this tremendous achievement. And I think that, you know, and then you see that he's fired after working in the league for nearly three decades and being, you know, an assistant coach in Tampa Bay, Philadelphia, Baltimore. And Then it's, you know, I I cannot imagine being David Culley and then hearing that Josh McCown got interviews and that the Texans were so enthusiastic about hiring him before, I assume, a lawyer walked in and was like, absolutely not, we cannot do this, that they were trying to get other teams to interview him and talk about it so there would be a legitimate choice. And that's what we were hearing from uh, the sports writer, Mike Florio. And it just is... I, I, I told somebody that like if Josh McCown got the head coaching job of the Texans, if, like Flores' lawsuit, just basically, I'm like, well, that's it. That's the that's the whole. Like, I just the lawsuit could have just said Josh McCown. That's all you needed to say.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I am I'm really curious where the lawsuit goes because I do feel like the the where this gets really important, I think to to note because you know some people are are not not everybody is a, is, a, is a football fan. Uh, but where it gets important is that just how much influence football has, you know, in in entertainment, you know, and and in in sports. I mean, this is a multi multi billion dollar industry. You know, it. I mean, all you have to do is look at <laughs> who is advertising on the Super Bowl uh, on on Sunday to see what the the big movers and shakers and in, in the economy are. You know, who has disposable income uh, as as companies and want to push that message to the widest possible uh, audience and how the NFL reacts, whether they try to settle this, you know, whether they fight it, whether they fight Flores uh, in court, is just going to be, I think it's going to be a very important moment for us because I mean, I, I honestly like when I, I, you know, I read your, your column uh, and your, and your interview with Forrest and I just thought, Oh God, this guy's going to get Kaepernicked isn't he? I mean, he like, he's, he's never going to work in the NFL again, you know, because he's, because he's brave enough, you know, to, to take a stand like Colin Kaepernick. And then the result is in the prime of his career, he will not get a right. job.
1: And that's, I think that that's part of this because the idea that what we have currently is a meritocracy and that what Flores and others want is some sort of affirmative action. It's just like, have you seen the NFL? Do you know how many trash coaches there are in the NFL? There are coaches who, if you give them two minutes and unlimited timeouts and 30 yards, you, get, you they would wind into a ditch. And we know that. <laughs> We've seen it all the time. Like, There are very bad coaches in the NFL. There are very bad coaches with pretty okay teams because at a certain point there are sometimes where the talent level evens out. But when it comes to decision making, when it comes to late game scenarios, when it comes to do you kick here, do you not kick here, when to punt, when not to punt, like you, there are certain coaches where they always their instincts are always wrong. <laughs> and I think that there's a real sense here that. This is not about that these coaches aren't good enough to do this. They are not being chosen, and they are not able to show what they can do.
0: Let's segue to the. I'm, I'm now. I'm just saying Washington football team because I think Commanders is just it's just not penetrating my psyche. Uh, but the 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 Washington's franchise once once proud, uh, you know, three Super Bowl championships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, had a a real you know sort of. Time, you know, in Washington, you know, particularly in the nineties, in the eighties and nineties, was just a really special time to be, you know, a, a Washington fan. Uh, Dan Snyder, the current owner, has has kind of um, taken it in a different direction. Is that the most diplomatic way to say that? Yes. <laughs> um, and more than just his inability to consistently win or sign you know, people who are not at the tail end of a career or never had a career, uh, to, to say, uh, to say of, um, but he actually has, you know, attracted not just the attention of, of people who are paying attention to football with a hostile work environment, uh, but the attention of Congress even, which again is, is not you know, they, these are, uh, you know, they're, they're preoccupied, you know, funding the government and worrying about Russia and and all this kind of stuff, and they are actually the House Oversight, you know, uh, committee is is investigating the team's, you know, you know whether they harassed serial harassment of women uh, who worked for the organization, and I mean this this to me is like an. Elevated even beyond just the fact that it's here and this is a major media market and a lot Mm -hmm. of people pay attention to this uh, because of the the glare of Washington. uh, To me, this seems like this is a really big deal.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, I think the issue that Washington has here, um, it's funny to talk about this because it's like, I'm going to wind up saying Washington and Washington in numerous ways, so I should probably be more specific. The issue that the... Washington commanders have um, <laughs> is that literally everything they have done is wrong. Everything. So with regard to, um, if folks recall that there was a investigation into the practices of the commanders with regard to sexual harassment, which was endemic within the organization and, um, and there was a investigation by Beth Wilkinson's law firm. Um, she There was a written investigation, and then there was a oral presentation. And um, currently, the NFL is not able to publicly release the findings of those investigation without the explicit permission of Daniel Snyder. Right. <laughs> One in, of... In,
0: interested party, you might call him. Right?
1: Yes. A mildly interested party. In um, in that you know, many there are. There's an entire separate set of allegations against him for just. I being I creep. Being a creep. Yes, just <laughs> being being a big old creep, and yep. so
0: videotaping his cheerleaders naked, yes, coming on yes, to them, um, harassing them.
1: Yeah, demanding uh, you know, secret tapes of cheerleaders, um, in various states of undress soundtracked by his favorite music. Um, he had investigators sent to the homes of former cheerleaders. He, um, uh, someone said in the, to the, told the, um, house oversight committee that, um, Daniel Snyder should not be managing any human beings, which I think anyone who has been so unlucky as to watch, Washington football player for the last decade would be like, yeah, this all, this all checks out. This yeah. 100% check out, checks out. And it, it is interesting to me that initially he handled this by um, handing over the team to, to his wife to become <laughs> CEO. Um, yeah, which I just like, oh, don't worry. I'm not involved because my wife, Tanya, is taking over as CEO. And I just, I feel as if um, I'm reminded of, Uh, About a decade ago, there was a um, Washington City paper uh, guide to Daniel Snyder. And it resulted in Daniel Snyder clearly not understanding what uh, the Streisand effect is. They first wanted the person who wrote it fired and then sued, um, which obviously then led to more... um,
0: stories about stories, (laughs) unflattering stories about what a bully is. and it just is,
1: you know, this is not, this has been going on for more than a decade. This is someone who, you know, this is going on for multiple decades. This is someone who was charging money to go to workouts. They're charging fans for admission to the team's workouts in the year 2000. This is someone who would charge money to basically anyone, anyone doing anything regarding the time, or regarding, um, the team and I think that uh, that I, I I found that article and there was a quote in it from uh, the then director of economic policy studies AI Kevin Hassett who said that um, <laughs> Snyder's football operation was a leading exemplar of this tendency towards irrationality. <laughs> like he is not good at this. He's not good at this. He is not a good person, and he's not good at his job. But because of how the NFL works, you cannot extricate. Without a great deal of difficulty, and Lord knows people are trying, you cannot extricate a team from the people who own it. It is a giant, expensive problem. And it's a giant, expensive problem that is the fault of Dan Snyder. And it is the fault of the people who work around Dan Snyder. And I think that we see time and time again that this type of behavior will be handled the way the NFL handles everything, which will be that they'll get back to you or there'll be a memo or there'll be a committee because inaction is far easier than action of any type. And I think that that's something it's, it's particularly telling with the Washington example.
0: And I think, you know, one of the things that the, one of the sticks, you know, if you will, that, that Congress, or at least the, you know, the, the, the administration and and working with Congress have against the, Snyder and the Washington team is that they can subpoena documents. Uh, they may mm-hmm. not get them, but then there's also the case of like, you know, he wants to move from suburban Maryland, Prince George's County in, back into DC right. and pretty much anywhere he wants to put a stadium in DC needs some sort of federal sign off, right. you know, what right. because, because the land is owned typically by the interior department or something like that. So there is this uh, push pull in DC that doesn't really exist necessarily in, in, in a lot of other cities where, you know, the billionaire says like, I want a multi-billion dollar right. stadium right here. Right. And I'm just right. going mean, to wipe out a city I, block.
1: <laughs> which I do, I do kind of appreciate that this can't be done the way like Paul Brown stadium was, which would just be like the taxpayers will pay for it. And <laughs> we're going to charge the hell out of them. Yep. Like I think a lot about how, it would be extremely expensive because if you haven't been to RFK in a long time, it's a it's more shambolic than you think it might be. But it is like an incredibly logical place for a stadium to be. Um it is like at the end of an intersection. Like you can see the Capitol from RFK. It's just mm-hmm. at the end of the same very long street. And it's it's in idea- a straight
0: line with the monument too. Yeah, and, and Rosalind. I mean it's a gorgeous it's, a great,
1: line. it's yeah. a great start line it's a great location it would be if it worked it would be a great idea and it doesn't work because <laughs> and it's been interesting because the mayor is always like when they announced the name change the mayor was like well you know what would be really cool is if we could get them moved back into the city because currently to go to a washington commander's game from. DC without a car involves the Metro and then a mile and a half walk, which (laughs) lovely walk, but like still probably not exactly what everyone's hoping for.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and RFK is right there on the subway. So (laughs) yeah, it, it, yeah, it's, it's right there. It's at stadium armory, the Metro stop. Um, So I think that that's, uh, it's just, it's all a mess. It's a giant mess. And it's just, but that's the thing about the NFL is that you can have a long running giant mess and everyone still makes a lot of money. Like if I remember correctly, like the Washington football team is one of the most profitable football team, like one of the most profitable football teams. It makes It's the 11th richest team in the NFL. The Cowboys are number one because they can sell merchandise and they're the richest sports team in the world, Um, which is an amusing thought in many ways. But like, there are diehard Washington football team fans, diehard Commanders fans. And a lot of them live in DC and have been fans of the team for their entire lives. And I just keep thinking about how like, if you're a fan of this team, a team that has made it harder and harder. I mean, I feel very much, I remember there was a time um, when Matt Millen owned the Detroit lions and things got so bad that people went on strike. (laughs) Like there was a march around the stadium with like hundreds of people demanding his firing and demanding he get out. And I I will say to the credit of the Ford family, they were like, okay. Okay. Yeah, with
0: all this, I mean, like, it, there are so many problems, and you know, we, you know, we could talk about some of the other issues, you know, whether like mm-hmm. how they kind of cover up what, domestic violence and you know among the players, and they just sort of shunt off people on, you know, like Antonio Brown, who's obviously needs counseling, you know, things like that. Why does it have this hold on us? Why, why do we all love football so much? Because I, I find myself, despite all that, still wanting to watch the games, um, you know, like and and they. I feel bad about it kind of, but I also like, it's it's hugely entertaining and it has this, it just has this pull on us and I don't, I can't figure out why.
1: I think that football is the most beautiful sport in the world. I've loved football since I was a kid. I used to watch with my dad to hang out with my dad because my dad, um, you know, he watched the Bengals every Sunday, which, you God know, help him. I was, <laughs> In the early 90s, it was just like, man, like the idea of the Bengals, like that's why I think I'm finding this Super Bowl so like mind-shattering. It's just like I was my I was born in 1987, so I have no memory of the the most recent Super Bowl. I have no memory of the most recent before this year playoff win. My entire life has been the Bengals being awful. the
0: Bengals. They were the yeah. Cincinnati Bengals,
1: <laughs> and that's I feel as if this is like this is it's it's like my, it's like my brain can't can entirely comprehend it. Where it just is like, it's like if you, um, it's like a real back to the future moment where you're just like, wait, who, Biff's in charge now? What? Like, and I, I just keep being like kind of overwhelmed by it. But I really do think that it's the most beautiful sport. It is, um, it's visually interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, just the combination of the brutality and the artistry. And the strategy where it's like, it's like playing hundreds of games of chess. Every single down is a chess game. What are you going to do? What are you going to do in result as a result of what the other person does? And to see this happening with some of the best athletes in the world, doing something that is incredibly specific. It is not a sport that can compare to other sports. If you're an offensive lineman, you're an offensive lineman and you are built to do that thing. And yet you also get people who are like wide receivers where you kind of have the feeling like you could have done literally anything, but this is what you do and you're the best in the world at it. And I just think that there is something... Something about that, especially when you see the full field and you see the ball snap and you just keep thinking like, what's happening? And it's like, somehow your eye, it's one of the few times in which my eyes can go two directions at once. And I'm like, top of the field, bottom of the field, who's open, what's going on, what's the blitz packaging, who's where, who, what's going on. And it's absorbing. I, um, you know, I, I, I always think it's funny that like, watching college football, I will forget what time it is. I will forget to eat. I will forget to do anything. I'll be like, oh, I haven't had any water today because I've been watching eight hours of football. And it just is like, it is somehow in a time where attention grabbing is harder than ever, football is fully attention possessing. I mean the NFL is the most infuriating league in the world because they are managing the most beautiful sport in the world and they they know that they could there are very few things they could do that would truly turn people off for a long period of time. And and, and for example a lot of the things people get really mad about it turns out pay dividends later. Like protecting the quarterback, those efforts that started you know 8 or 9 years ago are why you can have somebody like a Patrick Mahomes or something like that. You can have quarterbacks with more mobility because you're aware that if they get out of the pocket, they're not going to get immediately just blindsided by somebody. So even when people complained about, oh, that's ruining the game, like now the game is even faster than before. Everybody scores all the time. And like people like watching that. It just is, it's infuriating because it's just, it's like, if you knew this really wonderful person who just kept falling over all the time and you're like <laughs> if you just would stop doing that it's 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 i don't know it's it's hard it's hard out here
0: well it's it's going to keep it's going to keep our attention at least you know for the foreseeable future and and i like i said I, I really appreciate you like talking about all these issues and how they interrelate because it is hard to kind of you know kind of grasp how big it is just in our consciousness as well as our pocketbooks and in right. and our, and our culture. So uh, Jane, uh, where can people uh, follow you on social media, on Twitter um, and, and so forth?
1: I'm at Jane Koston on Twitter. And you can, as always, listen to my podcast, The Argument, or yes. read my newsletter in the New York Times.
0: For sure, yes. And please subscribe to Jane's uh, podcast. It is awesome. It's a good listen. And as you can hear, she's awesome. Jane, thank you so much.
1: Great, thank you so much.